All right, man. Welcome to the intro for episode 90 of Crow 777 Radio Podcast. Jason Lindgren is with me. We're going to talk about eugenics. Um, eugenics is a heck of a thing, man. Uh, there is no excuse in this world for ideas like this and for the idea that there are a group of people who are even qualified to implement some of the things that we're going to talk about here. Uh, in many ways, there's a little difference between the idea of eugenics and what happens at dog pounds which on its own is often shameful. But let's talk about natural rights for a second before we jump in. Um, there is a universal law in this place we exist um, that follows the thinking that a person's free will cannot be infringed uh, by other people. This is how we get things like the straw man corporation, all these other made-up fake things that then are designed to compel the living man or living women to in fact do things. The, the issue here is that in these constructs, the living man or living woman is actually opting in to allow themselves to be manipulated in certain ways. Um, in other ways, it's not so clear cut. But I would point out that when you wake up in a day and you walk out into the world, if you stop at the first door you come to and you think, well, I open this door with my right hand or my left hand and you sit there and make the decision, then you do it, you have in fact changed everything that will happen after. Cause and effect. Um, some parts of the world this will be called karma, which is very closely related to cause and effect. But think about what we're saying here. This is the reason, I believe, why free will cannot be infringed, that there's this universal idea of a universal law that the free will of a human being cannot be infringed. Because every time a person is made to do something other than what they normally would have done. Everything that follows has been changed. And I thought I'd throw that out as an idea, but eugenics, hell of a thing, man. Let's jump in with Jason Lindgren and, uh, and cover this kind of insidious idea. Here we go. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 90. I have Jason Lindgren with me, and I should call you all Eugene today because we are covering eugenics. Uh, welcome, Jason. Hello, hello, and this is going to be some interesting stuff. It is, man. This should be one heck of a show. Um, you know, as I got into it, I, I, I knew it would be interesting, but as I went through the stuff, I was just like, "Wow, this will be one heck of a, one heck of a broadcast." Anyhow, we do have a few things to cover uh, in the second intro here. <laughs> do you want to add anything before I jump on all this stuff? Nope. Let's go to it. All right. Uh, so everyone should know uh, I had an I built an app, first app uh, that I've ever done. I don't as everyone who follows knows, I don't really use cell phones. I've never used an app, believe it or not. Um, but I built an app which is ready for Android devices and will soon be ready for iOS. iOS is more difficult. The approval uh, process is more difficult for iOS, but the Android app is ready. I would steer everyone uh, to my Twitter account. That's probably the easiest way to link to it. Um, and I'm Crow Triple Seven on Twitter. Also on Twitter, I don't really communicate because I just simply don't have time for more things that keep my mind locked to a computer. But I post, you know, nearly everything that gets done, episodes, all that. So if you're interested, it's a good thing to uh, to sign up for my Twitter. Anyhow, uh, the the app is free. It's 100% free. And I included two full-spectrum kind of UFOE object clips transiting the moon that I shot 
couple years ago, anyhow, maybe three years ago, don't know for sure, uh, with a full-spectrum Canon camera. And uh, I don't believe I've ever posted them. Uh, they were in one of my folders that leads me to believe they were never posted, but I've made so many videos, I can't be 100% sure, but I'm reasonably sure. Also, uh, free within the free app, are many of the episode images. As many people know, they love the episode images because many of them are kind of like puzzles. Um, they have something to say uh, that AI is not going to figure out or a search bot, believe me. Uh, half the people that look at them uh, have to ask. Also, I finally did get with Greg Carlwood of Higherside Chats. We did that THC episode. It is posted live over at Higherside Chats. So you should go check that out. It was a, a really good episode. So thank you, Greg. And also, transcripts. Um, if you're a member, you can log into Crow 777 Radio and you will see the transcripts link at the top right of the page. Right now, we have episodes 53 through 89 transcribed. Um, that's a hell of a lot of work. There's actually a human being in this world listening back to every episode and hand typing these things. They're nearly word perfect. Lastly, when this episode goes live this Thursday, uh, it's Wednesday today, there will be 90 free hours of content on Crow 777 Radio. And that's about all I got for the beginning there, Jason. All right. I don't have anything either, so let's get to it. All right, man, let's jump in and uh, let's do this, Eugene. So what we're going to talk about is eugenics. Now, we've, of course, mentioned this before, but we're going to go into great detail here. And most people associate eugenics with Nazi Germany, but that is wrong because it didn't start in Nazi Germany. Although they took it to an extreme, it started big time, first in Europe and then immediately afterwards in the United States. So let's just go over some easy stuff here. The definition of eugenics. The word comes from the Greek roots for good and origin or good birth. It is the science of improving a human population by controlled breeding to increase the occurrence of desirable, heritable characteristics. Initially developed largely by Francis Galton as a method of improving the human race, it fell into disfavor only after the perversion of its doctrines by the Nazis. The study of or belief in the possibility of improving the qualities of the human species or a human population, especially by such means as discouraging reproduction by persons having genetic defects or presumed to have inheritable, undesirable traits, which is called negative eugenics, or encouraging reproduction by persons presumed to have inheritable, desirable traits, which is positive eugenics. So as we get into this, I mean, we're going to we'll point it out early here. This is one hell of a kind of Luciferian self-centric view. Who the hell is the arbiter of what is valuable and what is not in terms of genes? But I'll state for the record here, as everyone who follows knows, I have real problems with the historical accounts of World War II, and that includes anything to do with Nazis. But setting that aside, I will mention this, Jason, when I was in grade school, I remembered having a lot of friends and classmates named Eugene, three or four that I can think of. That name doesn't seem to be used much anymore, but the name Eugene itself carries the same definition that eugenics does and basically means well-born. But anyhow, I'll let you keep pushing through. To follow up with your Nazi comment there, I actually focused away from Germany other than for certain key points that are in the history books, on the law books, actually, I should say. And focus primarily on, on all the things that were going on in the United States, which is more than most people will probably realize. I spent 
a lot of time digging through this stuff, and I goodness only knows how much I missed. You know, Jason, I noticed that as I was scanning through this, uh, I woke up early this morning to get through this quite sizable document, um, and I noticed exactly what you mentioned. The problem, and I think you recognize it, clearly you recognize it, is whenever you say Nazi, it's a loaded word. It's like so many of the words in the modern day, uh, you say them and they're loaded. So even if our accounts of these ideas, places, peoples, things uh, were accurate, uh, what's been attached to them skews the conversation from the get-go. But for my part, uh, I think that just accepting historical accounts from big things like World War II is a mistake. And I think the Nazis may be the pinnacle of of that questionable uh, history. But anyhow, Jason, let's keep pushing through here. Now, one thing you'll hear attached to eugenics a lot is the concept of unfit versus fit individuals. Both class and race factored into eugenics definitions of fit and unfit. By using intelligence testing, American eugenicists asserted that social mobility was indicative of one's genetic fitness. This reaffirmed the existing class and racial hierarchies and explained why the upper to middle class was predominantly white. Middle to upper class status was a marker of superior strains. In contrast, eugenicists believed poverty to be a characteristic of genetic inferiority, which meant that those deemed unfit were predominantly of the lower classes. Because class status designated some more fit than others, eugenicists treated upper and lower class women differently. Positive eugenicists who promoted procreation among the fittest in society, encouraged middle-class women to bear more children. Between 1900 and 1960, eugenicists appealed to middle-class white women to become more family-minded and to help better the race. To this end, eugenicists often denied middle- and upper-class women sterilization and birth control. Since poverty was associated with prostitution and mental idiocy, women of the lower classes were the first to be deemed unfit and promiscuous. Man, there is a ton here, Jason, but, you know, just this last part where where you're seeing that they're encouraging middle-class women to bear more children, if I'm not mistaken, it is some of the most poverty-stricken areas of this world that tend to have the most children. I'm not 100% sure of that, um, but it would bear looking at. But to get back to the idea that class and race are factored factored here and they're giving tests for intelligence and things like this, here's a real-world account. My father was a Ph.D., Um, And while he was still alive and in his working life, he worked at universities, and he had to do with a lot of the tests that are given um, in in lower levels of school, grade schools and middle schools and high schools. And his constant problem, I heard him talk about it a lot, was that – these tests that they were issuing were not cross-culturally feasible. Those were his own words. In other words, here's all these white guys in a room that have all been educated up to the college level making these tests, and uh, he was constantly arguing these tests are useless because they're not cross-cultural. There's going to be a ton of people out there who tech take these tests who can't relate or or you know go at the test as another race or culture might and I, I would just add that in but the main the, the main measure here that we're talking about and whether a, a person is deemed fit or unfit in terms of genes is poverty isn't it it's all about money it's all about materialism 
And I would suggest to everyone listening, there was a time in this world when spiritual concerns uh, outmeasured the idea of wealth. And this is flipping that on its head. Uh, what they're basically saying here is it's all about cash and possessions. And if you can get a lot of them, then you're deemed fit. If you don't have a lot of these things, then you're deemed unfit. And I think that argument could be pulled apart all day long. Not sure where you're at on this, Jason. Well, it seems to me like Victorian scientists may have been looking at this just as a curiosity at first, it seemed to have been seized upon by anyone of an elite type status and used almost as an excuse to justify their own evil doings against the rest of the world. Yeah, I guess I can see a little bit of that, you know, like our, our way is the good way and we're going to prove it out here. We're going to push it forward. Um, I would argue that it's not the good way. Um, it's artificial. It, it puts us in the construct we have now where, you know, the average person would love not to pay taxes. The average person would love not to sit in a cubicle all day. This idea of making money and the way that uh, the West has developed has brought us basically for a lot of people to live through hell, basically, in a lifetime, they're going to work at a job they don't like. They're going to have to interact with corporation and all these other things that have been put around it. And it's a royal pain in the butt, to be blunt about it. Um, and I agree with you. This is just kind of another way to push these kind of corporate ideas forward uh, in, into the future ad nauseum. I'm going to say that we're still feeling the after effects of all this nonsense to today. Let's take a look at the concept of like the uh, 1950s Leave it to Beaver kind of example of a family. Middle class and all everyone was doing pretty well and the encouragement there is for the dad to have a decent job and the mom to stay at home and take care of the kids and have multiple children and that's how all the families were. Well, by the 1950s, eugenics was supposed to have been pretty much over and done with but uh, it seems that, that that after effect is still there. You never see anything about the poor people or anything like that. It's all about this middle class America. So there's one example of that. But I would say it really carried forward all the way up to today because now everyone is financially obsessed and they're all chasing this higher paying job thing because you have to do it. And that's that's your social status. Look at the difference, you know, and leave it to Beaver era, this kind of whitewashed version of reality that we're being handed, just the father works and the wife can stay home and take care of the family and do the, the cooking and cleaning and all this kind of idea. But look where look where that capitalistic kind of push has brought us. Homeownership is down to all time lows now. As I mentioned in a recent episode, uh, I consider myself the first generation that will not do better than my father and mother did, who in fact did better than their parents who did better than their parents all the way back as far as we can see, which is only about three or four generations uh, in, in my family. The point here is, is that the system doesn't even work. If the idea is the more money you make, the better off you are, um, then look what's happened. So few people can now actually afford to go out and buy a home that it's, it's ludicrous. And not only that, basically what it's saying is making a decent amount of money used to be good enough now now you have to make a crap load of money to even be in the game but yeah it's it's a broken system jason it's one-sided i would also say that all comes down to the federal reserve it's pretty established that the united states was the land of good and plenty until they started devaluing the dollar when it used to be a united states dollar and now it's a federal reserve note dollar 
Yeah, it's it's astonishing that we are all okay in this country when we know there's another crash coming. We had one in 08, you know, it, go, it goes just cycles over and over and over. It's like a big casino in the sky. This decade you might win, next decade you might lose. Um, but uh, since about the 80s, it has been on steroids. And the way people lived back then is vastly different than the people now. So many kids coming out of school now go live with their parents. But anyhow, let's talk about the man who, uh, who kicked off off this kind of perverse idea, Mr. Francis Galton. Yes, Francis Galton was born in Birmingham, England on February 16th, 1822. He was an explorer and anthropologist known for his studies in eugenics as well as human intelligence. As a child, Galton rejected conventional methods of teaching, and he began studying medicine in his teens. He soon embraced a passion for travel with the help from a sufficient fortune left to him from his father. Well, that must be nice. A cousin of Charles Darwin, Galton, researched the implications of Darwin's theory of evolution, focusing on human genius and selective mating. He first coined the term eugenics in 1883, meaning well-born. He received a knighthood from King Edward in 1909. Sir Francis Galton died on January 17, 1911, in Hasselmere, England, at the age of 88. In his will, he donated funds for a professorship in eugenics to University College London, as well as donating his personal collection and archive. So let's just poke some of the obvious holes here. You know, he coined the term eugenics in 1883, let me count the ways. Then he turns around and dies on January 17, 1911. You don't even got to count the ways. It's in your damn face. He dies at the age of 88. Um, there's a lot of people that would make hay out of the ordinal idea of a lot of fours there. Um, but anyhow, uh, it's pretty clear who we're looking at here in my book, Jason. Um, the, the key numbers here, we got to stop and count the ways, but he inherits a fortune, basically. And who is he cousin to? Of course, Charles Darwin. Um, and we've we've done work on these things. I even have the blog up about going to the crossroads to show the nonsensical nature of the idea of evolution using the simplest little thing we've all known since we were children as one of the, the, the main points in the article. You know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? These things that we bandy about actually prove something, prove something undeniable that evolution is nonsense. And so basically, if we were going to look at eugenics here and compare it to his cousin, Charles Darwin, compare eugenics to evolution. One of them, evolution, is completely provably nonsensical, and the other one is just an artificial, it's no different than going to the AKC and watching people breed dogs to get different outcomes. It's about the same thing in my view. But anyhow, Jason. Now, Galton was working to raise the present miserably low standard of the human race by breeding the best with the best. His theories were based on the idea that individuals are born with a definite endowment of qualities like character, disposition, energy, intellect, or physical power. Qualities that from his point of view would go towards the making of civic worth. He also decided that natural selection does not work in human societies the way it does in nature because humans interfere with the process for a variety of reasons. As a result of this, the fittest do not always survive. His intentions with his work were to improve the race. He coined the word eugenics to describe efforts at race betterment. In 1883, Galton defined eugenics as the science of improving stock 
which is by no means confined to questions of judicious mating, but which takes cognizance of all influences that tend, in however remote a degree, to give the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable than they otherwise would have had. He was also quite concerned with the decline of genius that he saw in society. He believed that intelligence is an inherited trait and that the upper classes contain the most intelligent and accomplished people. He was upset seeing that the poor had a much higher birth rate. Well, there it is. He confirms what I, you know, what I supposed uh, last couple bullets back that poor people have more children. But one, one of the ideas here is that people are born with a definite endowment and that survival of the fittest, which is a Darwinian idea, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't apply to humans because humans interfere with it. Well, you know what? That proves that survival of the fittest is nonsense. We're living beings. We're living things in this world. So if you're going to say survival of the fittest is a thing, how are you going to exclude human beings from this idea, um, in my view? But the real tell is making civic worth. How many times have we talked about straw man identities, the idea of civilization, society, civic? People should go look up the word civic. You can see what's being pushed here. But again, in 1883, let me count the ways, he starts talking about the science of improving stock. Uh, which is not just about judicious mating. Um, and finally, at the end of this bullet point, he talks about the decline of genius. Jason, I would estimate that about 50% of the shows you and I have done have been designed to demonstrate that there has been an organic push by those in charge to lower the mental states to kind of infantile animalistic levels through programming of one kind of another designed to do exactly that, decline the mental ability of human beings or take a genius mind and lower it down to a childlike mind. So here he is making an argument for one natural process he sees when in fact it's being manipulated from both ends. Um, that's where I'm coming from, Jason. If things have been allowed to continue with technological progression from his time onward, we would have a lot more of good people of good stock because nutrition would be better and we wouldn't be filled with all these nasty things that they like to pump us full of. We would have more smart people, but you don't have that. Right. Just look at school alone, Jason. You know, in the forum over at Crow777radio.com, someone posted uh, some ledgers from, I forget what it was, early in the earlier in the last century um, of what an 11 year old child was getting in school and they were transcribing Latin, they were transcribing Greek, they were doing all these things. So, uh, you know, no one's going to make the argument successfully, as far as I'm concerned, that the powers that be are purposely dumbing down society. So the idea that, oh, look, you know, humans breed and there's a decline of genius and we've got to get in and make them breed the way we want them to to reverse this. Well, nonsense. The people at the top are already doing everything they can to lower the human mind. So, I mean, the, the argument rings hollow from the get-go. Right. I would say that if there was the intention at first to try and make things better, that very quickly evaporated as soon as people like the Rockefellers came to power. It's just not what we see in the history at all. 
No, and it's reflected in every aspect. It's not just school. Look at our food supply. Look what they're doing to water. Even look at dentistry, which we covered recently, where they're actually putting mercury in people's mouths. You know, if you were going to go back to a time before all this kind of manipulation, you know, 100 or 200 years, if there was such a time, and look at people drinking natural water supplies out of a stream, eating 100% organic food, whatever it may have been, you better believe that probably those mines were in, you know, a higher functioning capacity uh, than, than the rest of us here today. I know it's a bold statement. It's a hard thing to prove, but reasonably we can work that out, I think. Well, if nutrition was available to the people over, let's say, 100 years ago-ish, then, yeah, they had a much better chance to get what they needed from day one. You do not have that same chance today. There's plenty of food around, but that food is highly nutrition-starved. Not only that, Jason, back in those days, they would have been eating what was available at the time of the year it was available, and there is a whole bunch of people who are into the idea, I've forgotten the idea, something biotics, where you only eat what's ready in the certain time of the year it's ready. I've forgotten the term for it. But this, again, is in step with the alchemical idea that living beings within this system need to act, consume, and achieve in step with the natural system. And, you know, I've said it a zillion times, in the same way we plant a seed in spring, um, that farmer's going to eat what comes ripe when it comes ripe. And that is a whole other idea of uh, a way to put a person at peak performance, both mentally and otherwise. So here next we have from Galton's 1904 paper, Eugenics, its definition, scope, and aims. Persistence in setting forth the national importance of eugenics. There are three stages to be passed through. Firstly, it must be made familiar as an academic question until its exact importance has been understood and accepted as a fact. Secondly, it must be recognized as a subject, the practical development of which deserves serious consideration. And thirdly, it must be introduced into the national conscience like a new religion. It has indeed strong claims to become an orthodox religious tenet of the future, for eugenics cooperate with the workings of nature by securing that humanity shall be represented by the fittest races. What nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly, man may do providently, quickly, and kindly. As it lies within his power, so it becomes his duty to work in that direction, just as it is his duty to succor neighbors who suffer misfortune. The improvement of our stock seems to me one of the highest objects that we can reasonably attempt. We are ignorant of the ultimate destinies of humanity, but feel perfectly sure that it is as noble a work to raise its level in the sense already explained as it would be disgraceful to abase it. I see no impossibility in eugenics becoming a religious dogma among mankind, but its details must first be worked out sedulously in the study. Our zeal leading to hasty action would do harm by holding out expectations of a near golden age, which will certainly be falsified and cause the science to be discredited. The first and main point is to secure the general intellectual acceptance of eugenics as a hopeful and most important study. Then let its principle work into the heart of the nation who will gradually give practical effect to them in ways that we may not wholly foresee. 
God, man, this guy might as well gargle with horse manure, man. I've never heard so much hogwash in my life, Jason. Um, in the beginning, he's talking about needs to be like a new religion, and by the end saying, oh, it won't be treated like a new religion. But the things that really cure me here is, is these ideas. For eugenics cooperate with the workings of nature by securing – no, they don't. You're looking at people interfering with the workings of nature here. In the same way that we have a gazillion dog breeds, nature didn't make that. People made that. But then he goes on to say, what nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly. Jason, I would submit to you that this construct of a human being is here to push the artificial agenda that we have covered so often that seeks to replace our natural world. Um, I mean, come on. Have you ever heard? more tripe than is covered in this bullet point. He actually has the balls to say what nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly, man may do providently, quickly, and kindly. I mean, come on, man. Um, we better start drinking the Kool-Aid if we're going to accept any of this, in my view. This sounds like the typical arrogance of the elite aristocracy notion that they know better than Mother Nature itself. Agreed. And, it, you know, it sets aside the whole fact that nature appears to be a perfect system from our point of view, whether it's natural in the way we think of it, no matter what, things get done all the time in the time they're supposed to without fail. People don't do that. People don't make perfect systems. And, you know, here it is exactly what you said, these kind of hoity-toity deluded minds thinking that they can create some kind of an artificial semblance that, you know, surpasses the natural system we were born into. Um, it's, it's complete junk. It's base junk in my ears, man. It's always these people with money, too, you know? He, it says right in his own biography that he received a sizable inheritance from his father. Well, do you think he did much with his life as far as having to struggle? <laughs> no, he sat in his freaking study surrounded by all his lovely papers and books, which I have no problem with. But what did he know about life on a day-to-day -day basis, people who actually had to work for a living, things like that? He had enough money to travel the world at a time when that would have been hideously expensive and dangerous and obviously survived it quite okay. So, you know, it's, it always comes from this kind of thing. You know, you make a fantastic point here, Jason. There it is in a nutshell. You know, it's the whole idea that I included in the thumbnail that the needs of the few outweigh the needs of the many. Good point. So here are all these rich people. What what vision do they have of the world as a whole? They have little vision. These are people who probably sit in their study drinking tea thinking, how am I going to fill up my day today? I know I'll invent eugenics. I know that's a little bit of a ridiculous statement, but I'm just pointing out, you know, you nailed it, Jason. Well, I just kind of picture all these creepy old men sitting around their social clubs, sipping brandy and smoking expensive cigars, going, all right, how are we going to fix the world with all these dreadful people in it? Hmm. <laughs> and by the way, we are better than the system that made us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's kind of how every time I look at this stuff, this is what I picture. It's, just, it's these kinds of people, these families. And it's not about the common man, which there's a gazillion more common people than there are these, these elite pricks. But it is what it is, you know, like they're the ones who have the money and power to push society the way they want to, or at least they try very hard to. You know, I'm just wondering, back before what's called the greatest generation, when people were probably thinking at a higher level, what did the average person who read a paragraph like you just read think? Um, were they thinking, I'm, I'm praying to God they were thinking what I'm thinking, you know, what a bunch of hogwash. But anyhow, let's get back into it and we can start off by counting the ways, can we not?
So, of course, eugenics filtered right over to the United States, and here's where I'm going to start talking about all the lovely things that, that were going on here in the United States. 1901 and 1902, The Blood of the Nation, A Study in the Decay of Races by the Survival of the Unfit. This was the title of a number of publications by the American eugenicist David Starr Jordan, the president of Stanford University. His thesis, under the same name, first appeared in the May 1901 edition of Popular Science Monthly. It was republished in book form by the American Unitarian Association in 1902 and again in 1910. It was intended to promote the eugenics movement and bring its aims to a broader, non-academic audience. You know... Bullet points like this kind of really underscore what we have been saying about science. Science is a corruption. Um, I don't know if it was always a corruption, but in our time and even back here to 1901, it's a damn corruption. Look what they're saying. Look what they are doing. They're they're using a thing they're going to call science to fly in the face of the nature and the natural system that made us. And the one thing about science is it always connives its way around any roadblock to achieve its aim. And here we have the president of Stanford University, you know, um, he's going to go out and push this tripe. But uh, it's it's astounding. Chase. As we get into this, I think people will be astonished. Um, how long this has been around and that there are actually powerful people like presidents of university pushing this complete nonsense. Well, here, here's an interesting comparison to make. If you've ever seen a show called The Nick, that takes place around 1900, 1901, and it's all about the medical establishment at the time. If you want to see a good comparison of what they were thinking and talking about when this stuff was coming out and where medical science actually was at at that point. And that's just scary to think that these people thought that they really knew what they were doing. Yeah, man, I'll let you just keep pushing. It's so far, so much of what we've covered up to here is just beyond the pale, in my view. It is such a self-centric, following the Luciferian doctrine, me, 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 um, judge, jury, and executioner mindset. That's that's what what you know has struck me up to this point. 1903, the American Genetic Association, which in 1903 was called the American Breeders Association, was a professional and still is a professional organization founded to encourage the study of comparative genetics and genomics and to promote the application of genetic and genomic methods to the documentation, conservation, and management of organismal diversity. The American Breeders Association held its first meeting in 1903 to discuss the new science of genetics that arose from Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and Gregor Mendel's discoveries of the laws of inheritance. The organization was established to study the laws of breeding and to promote the improvement of plants and animals by the development of expert methods of breeding. All right, man, these guys are going to come help us out and they're going to study the laws of breeding and promote the improvement I repeat, the improvement of plants and animals by the development of expert methods of breeding. Um, what do you suppose the biggest corporations and the most powerful organizations are doing with information like places like this generate? Well, let's take Monsanto. Um, are they improving plants with their genetic nonsense and their GMO products and all this? I don't think I need to say much more here, Jason. Places like this are almost certainly coming up with ideas and information uh, that are the bane of modern existence. And I think places like Monsanto prove the point. You want to claim that you're improving plants? Well, you got to face a place like Monsanto to complete that argument, don't you? Well, it shows that they really were trying to figure this out way back when, and we know what they've done with that information, don't we? 
Right. Uh, it, it has not been for the betterment of anything uh, from the natural point of view, which is really the only point of view I can take. All the rest of it is artificial in my eyes, and this is the kind of artificial nonsense uh, that got us where we are, making claims that you're improving plants. Um, come on. So you're God now or whatever you want to call yourself. This natural system made these plants, and you're going to go in and tinker with their genes, their, you know, all of it, and then claim you've made something better. Uh, I would point anyone to the potato chip aisle in a supermarket now go ahead find one single bag of anything that doesn't say gmo on it um there it is in in black and white english anyone can go go look and know that what they've done with information like this is not helpful in the least it was for the betterment of their damn pocketbook if you ask me yeah basically so we're going to jump over to europe for a moment with a gentleman named alfred Plotz. Born in Swinemund, Germany in 1860, he was a physician, biologist, and eugenicist, and is known for coining the term racial hygiene and promoting the concept in Germany. Plotz first proposed the theory of racial hygiene, which is race-based eugenics, in his Racial Hygiene Basics in 1895. In 1904, he founded the periodical Journal of Racial and Social Biology with Fritz Lenz as chief editor. In 1905, he founds the German Society for Racial Hygiene with 31 members. In 1907, the society became the International Society for Racial Hygiene. Its goal was for society to return to a healthy and blooming, strong and beautiful life, as Plotz defined it in his own words. The Nordic race was supposed to regain its purity through selective reproduction and sterilization. The society would be gone after World War II. In 1930, he became an honorary doctor of the University of Munich. He was a supporter of the Nazi Party, big surprise there, which took power in 1933. He wrote in April 1933 that he believed Hitler would bring racial hygiene from its previous marginality into the mainstream. In 1933, Reich Interior Minister Wilhelm Frick established an expert advisory committee for population and racial policy, which included Plotz, Fritz Lenz, Ernst Ruden, and Hans F. K. Guntner. This expert advisory committee had the task of advising the Nazis on the implementation and enforcement of legislation regarding racial and eugenic issues. In 1936, Hitler appointed Plotz to a professorship. In 1937, he joined the Nazi Party. He died in 1940, being praised by the Nazi Party for his massive contributions to Nazi ideology. Funny enough, at first he had no problem with Jews, as is commonly associated with Nazis, but later revised his viewpoint, stressing that the distinctiveness of Jews indicated that their mental characteristics would adversely affect Aryans by introducing individualism and lack of love for the military and the nation. He then favored the global dominance of the Aryan race. Wow. <laughs> a lot there in a history uh, that we'll take with a pinch of salt, but uh, I don't speak German, but he was born in Swinemoon. Someone out there, correct me, doesn't that translate in English to pig world? I'm not 100% sure of that, but I'm thinking it might. But anyhow, I think the main point for me here is here this guy founds the German Society for Racial Hygiene. And so we're talking about entire races. And how many members are there? 31. So here we have 31 dudes that are going to tell entire races how they can be better. Um, poppycock on the face of it, Jason. 
And the reason I brought this guy up was because at the time, as this whole thing was building in the early 20th century, the Germans and the Americans were totally obsessed with this stuff. And they were going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, shaking each other's hands and congratulating each other on how awesome they are. It wasn't until all the way up until World War II that there were any problems whatsoever. Even World War I, I think they still kept going with these studies and all that. Well, you know, we we did the blood episode, Jason. If the things that we covered there are correct or near correct, basically what's gone on here is the ruling classes in this world have practiced self-eugenics, right? I mean, we're told in in uh, average society that you can't sleep with someone as close as maybe a second cousin, right? But we can point to royal families who interbred in family lines much closer than second cousins, and we can also show the predominance of a Rh negative blood factor and a predominance of the O blood type, uh, and it's attributable to basically what I would call as self-imposed eugenics. I mean, what do you think? Oh, I I know that they did this, but the other problem with that is when you keep doing this nonsense, you also have a much greater chance for imbecility, and that's exactly what they got on a lot of occasions. Well, it's a, we've used the example before, you know, if you take a dog that's going to be a police dog and you're breeding them to be kind of vicious on command, uh, the same thing is going to hold true of anything you breed, people included. If you have cold, calculating people interbreeding, what's going to be the outcome of that? But I would also point out, look at the story of the last supposed kings of Russia that we've been handed, the Romanovs, if we can accept any of that history. Um, we're told that they had endless blood problems with hemophilia and other things. Um, and that is attributed in many places to the, to, you know, the inter, the too close interbreeding closer than second cousin. I don't know how much truth there is to that. And I would actually be interested to speak to someone who's like a dog breeder, um, who's got real world experience with how close within a family unit you can breed without getting, you know, flipper footed dogs or whatever, um, because that would almost certainly hold true for people too. But anyhow, man, back to you. The eugenics movement took root in the United States in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s. Early supporters of eugenics believed that, through selective breeding, the human species should direct its own evolution. They tended to believe in the genetic superiority of Nordic, Germanic, and Anglo-Saxon peoples, or, to put it basically, white people. They supported strict immigration and anti-miscegenation laws, and they supported the forcible sterilization of the poor, disabled, and immoral. Eugenics was also, interestingly, supported by certain African-American intellectuals, names such as W.E.B. Du Bois, Thomas Wyatt Turner, and many other academics at Tuskegee University, Howard University, and Hampton University. They also believed the best blacks were as good as the best whites, and the talented tenth of all races should mix. W.E.B. Du Bois believed only fit blacks should procreate to eradicate the race's heritage of moral iniquity. I'm going to say one thing here, man. Look who's talking. Uh, These are academics and associated with the Tuskegee. Tuskegee University. What the hell more do we need to say here? These are not people who uh, have the concerns of the common human being at heart. They just don't. It's all there is to it. Um, They can bring all the black people in they want. They can bring all the PhDs and they can argue Nordic, German, Anglo best all they want all day long. But the truth is, is that this natural world created a variety of peoples. 
Every one of these peoples brings something unique to this world, and there will never be an organization of men or women or a mix of the two that are even fit to judge what should stay and what should go. If they want to hold on to things like Darwinism and natural selection and then turn around and put the human hand on all the breeding, uh, it shows you the nonsensity from beginning to end. In my view, we live in a very diverse world and every bit of diversity that's removed, we've lost something. And again, just to harp on the harp, uh, there will never be a group of in a boardroom somewhere that are even fit to decide what stays and what goes. In my view, not only that, Jason, there's no possible way they could ever have a good enough view to have enough information to even make good decisions. Next, we're going to cover two individuals who were very much at the epicenter of all the American eugenics. Charles Benedict Davenport is the first. This prick was born June 1st, 1866, and lived until February 18th, 1944, and he was a prominent American eugenicist and biologist. He was one of the major leaders of the American eugenics movement, and we will be discussing quite a lot more on him very shortly. As quoted in the National Academy of Sciences' biographical memoir of Charles Benedict Davenport by Oscar Riddle, Davenport's eugenics creed was as follows. I believe in striving to raise the human race to the highest plane of social organization, of cooperative work, and of effective endeavor. I believe that I am the trustee of the germ plasm that I carry, that this has been passed on to me through thousands of generations before me, and that I betray the trust if, that's germplasm being good, I so act as to jeopardize it with its excellent possibilities or from motives of personal convenience to unduly limit offspring." I believe that, having made our choice in marriage carefully, we, the married pair, should seek to have four to six children in order that our carefully selected germplasm shall be reproduced in adequate degree, and that this preferred stock shall not be swamped by that less carefully selected. I believe in such a selection of immigrants as shall not tend to adulterate our national germplasm with socially unfit traits. And the last quote... I believe in repressing my instincts when to follow them would injure the next generation. So, Jason, on the face of it, this man is full of crap. Uh, listen to this. I believe that I am the trustee of the germplasm that I carry that has been passed on to me through thousands of generations before me. There it is. There was nature creating more, 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 more in the way nature does. But now he's going to step in and say, but all these thousands of generations that got me to where I am, they weren't good enough. Now we need to step in and do whatever the hell we feel like doing. It's a nonsensical argument on the face of it. And this man uh, has inferior mental ability in my view. There's a such a massive hole in the middle of this argument that it can never be uh, accepted in my view, Jason. Prick number two, Harry Hamilton Laughlin, March 11th, 1880 until January 26th, 1943, was a leading American eugenicist in the first half of the 20th century. He was the superintendent of the eugenics record office from its inception in 1910 to its closing in 1939 and was among the most active individuals in influencing American eugenics policy, especially compulsory sterilization legislation. He worked as a high school teacher and principal before his interest turned to eugenics. This led to his correspondence with prick number one, Charles Davenport, an early researcher into Mendelian inheritance in the United States. 
In 1910, Davenport asked Laughlin to move to Long Island, New York, to serve as the superintendent of his new research office, which we'll be getting to in a moment. Now, the interesting thing about this guy is that he frequently would booger his research intentionally to get the results he wanted, especially when handing it in to the government to get laws enacted. Well, again, there's only one thing we need to focus in here. This dude's involved in compulsory sterilization legislation. Guess what? People have free will. There is a universal rule, apparently, in this place we live that says a person's free will cannot be infringed on. That's why they have created corporations and straw man identities and all these supposed bizarre workarounds to try to compel the individual to impinge his own freedom of movement freeing them up from having to have intervened. When you start talking about compulsory compulsory sterilization, you're talking about the open, wanton infiltration of interfering with the free will of a human being. Um, And that can't be defended. It's that simple in my view. In 1903, the Carnegie Institute of Washington approved a plan that was put forward by Charles Davenport to establish a biological experiment station to study evolution at Cold Spring Harbor. While he was already directing the neighboring biolab, he was named the first director from 1904 until 1934 of the Carnegie Institute of Washington's Department of Genetics. It was originally named the Station for Experimental Evolution and had formally opened on June 11, 1904 in Cold Spring Harbor to study heredity and evolution through breeding experiments with plants and animals. In 1910, while Davenport was directing both operations, Mrs. E.H. Harriman of the famous Harriman elite's more pricks, established the Eugenics Record Office at Cold Spring Harbor for him to head as well. The ERO eventually became part of the Department of Genetics. All we got to look at here is what they're studying. They're mixing cream with oil. They're coming in to establish a biological experiment station to study evolution. Evolution was made up out of whole cloth by some supposed guy named Darwin, and we can prove outright that it has no natural existence. And I've got a whole blog written about it called I Went Down to the Crossroads on Crow777radio.com that points out why evolution is provable nonsense. And I will suffice it for this you know, argument that I'm making here to say simply what came first, the chicken or the egg. That little statement, too, proves that evolution is an impossible, nonsensical idea. And here they are, you know, studying a thing they made up that has no basis in reality and then mixing it with the way natural our natural world moves around us in an effort to bring science to bear to connive some outcome they want, regardless of what nature wants. So there it is, man. In 1906, together with Irving Fisher and Charles Davenport, John Harvey Kellogg, yes, that's the same Kellogg that you buy cornflakes from, founded the Race Betterment Foundation in Battle Creek, Michigan, which sponsored a series of conferences at its sanitarium in 1914, 1915, and 1928. Kellogg was outspoken on his beliefs on race and segregation, though in fact he actually raised several black foster children. It became a major center of the new eugenics movement in America. Kellogg was in favor of racial segregation and believed that immigrants and non-whites would damage the gene pool. So, I mean, we could do a whole show on Kellogg alone here, Jason. Uh, I think I'll refrain from comment on him because maybe we'll come back on him one of these days. There is an in-depth show we could do around Kellogg alone. Anyhow, go ahead, man. The Eugenics Record Office, or the ERO, located in Cold Spring Harbor, New York, United States. 
was a research institute that gathered biological and social information about the American population, serving as a center for eugenics and human heredity research from 1910 to 1939. It was established by the Carnegie Institution of Washington's Station for Experimental Evolution and subsequently administered by its Department of Genetics. Its founder, Charles Benedict Davenport, and its director, Harry H. Laughlin, were major contributors to the field of eugenics in the United States. Its mission was to collect substantial information on the ancestry of the American population, to produce propaganda that was made to fuel the eugenics movement, and to promote the idea of race betterment. So all the way back here, you know, this is a long time ago, 1910 to 1939, they are collecting data. Um, how many shows have we done trying to urge people to get the hell off things like Facebook, where they're just basically data collection hubs? This is the kind of thing that data is used for, everyone listening. Um, make no mistake, these guys were doing it back at the turn of the prior century. But what more do we need to know here than seeing the name Carnegie attached to it and then hear the words like experimental evolution? What the hell does that even mean? Evolution is a provably nonsensical idea. And here they're, you know, bringing the human hand in. So basically, if you wanted to take the term eugenics, you could almost interchange it with the words experimental evolution, in my view. I mean, what do you think, Jason? Well, I, I think these people are all up each other's ass and just not even capable of seeing reality for what it is. They just had their own beliefs and they were just plunging forward, trying to prove it, even going so far as to falsify information to prove what it is they wanted to be true. Well, they're also inventing things that don't exist, things like evolution. Um, it's the same thing as when we did the episode that showed zero has no basis in a natural world. Um, evolution has no basis in a natural world. There are a lot of things you could attribute to an animal acclimatizing itself to where it lives over generations, like a wild pig being released into the wild and then growing tusks in a generation or two. Um, this is not evolution. It is something different. Uh, evolution is described in a wholly different way. But as we can prove, once again, evolution is nonsensical. So what they're doing is they're inventing things they call science, and it's all just geared to push an agenda that is self-serving. Uh, that's what we're looking at here. Well, if there's any uh, reality to evolution the way they state it, you and I would be having bananas right now instead of enjoying Mexican coffee, right? <laughs> I think I'll stick with the Mexican coffee. Indiana is the first state to enact eugenics laws. By the late 1800s, Indiana authorities believed criminality, mental problems, and pauperism were hereditary. Being poor is something you can inherit. How about that? <laughs> Various laws were enacted based on this belief. In 1907, Governor J. Frank Hanley approved first state eugenics law making sterilization mandatory for certain individuals that were in state custody. Sterilizations were halted in 1909 by Governor Thomas R. Marshall. The Indiana Supreme Court ruled that the 1907 law was unconstitutional in 1921, citing denial of due process under the 14th Amendment. In 1927, the law reinstated sterilization, adding court appeals. Oh, yay. Approximately 2,500 total in state custody were sterilized. Governor Otis R. Bowen approved repeal of all sterilization laws in 1974. By 1977, related restrictive marriage laws were also repealed. So, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong here. When they're implementing the sterilization and making it mandatory, this is prior to some of the straw man implementation, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that didn't come about till 1933. 
So what we're looking at is government and people of authority intervening directly with living men and women and imposing uh, a limitation of their free will. That's problematic in this world. Um, and there has been many things changed about our existence, primarily things like the straw man idea and the corporation idea to compel living men and women to have to do things. But this was all done before that. And what do we see? We see them struck down, repealed and pulled back. And then I guess from what, what we're reading here, completely removed between 1974 and 77. But that's a hell of a thing, Jason. Well, that's decades, though, and the damage that they did. Yeah, it's 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 a hard thing to fathom because what they basically did, well, some of those decades, the straw man identity was in place. But nonetheless, when you're making laws like this, how can the argument ever be made that people are doing this to themselves? Uh, they're putting in a mandatory rule that, I mean, no person can go self-sterilize. So again, you're infringing on the free will of a natural living human being. And that's against the rules, man. It's all there is to it. It's against the rules. It sure is. Connecticut becomes the second state to adopt eugenic laws using the Indiana plan as a model. First introduced in February of 1909 by Representative Wilbur F. Tomlinson, the Connecticut sterilization statute was passed on August 12, 1909. It concerned operations for the prevention of procreation. It was one of the shortest sterilization laws in the country. Connecticut's sterilization policy was also one of the most curious in that it was simultaneously highly conservative and vague, ambiguous, and lacking in procedural safeguards. The law allowed for the sterilization of certain patients in the state hospitals for the insane at Middletown and Norwich. The law also gave the staff at the two hospitals permission to examine the patient's family tree to help decide if the patient should be sterilized. The law permitted either male or female sterilizations through vasectomies or ovariectomies, respectively. Once the law was established, medical officials became interested in ways to sterilize massive groups of people. The locations for operations extended to the Mansfield State Training School and Hospital at Mansfield Depot in a 1919 amendment. On July 1st, 1965, the governor signed a bill that replaced the word ophorectomy with tubal surgery and required consent of an individual prior to the operation. Under this new law, a competent person who gives consent of her own surgery must also have the written consent of the responsible next of kin or guardian of such persons, or if there is none, with the approval of the board of trustees of the institution. So again, Jason, you know, this this stuff is enacted in 1919. Let me count the ways. And then we're back up on July 1, nearing the height of the power of the sun. There's the governor signing a bill, um, but they're backing off it, aren't they? Now, all of a sudden, the person has to give their permission, which should have been the case from the very beginning, because these people have no right to infringe on the freedom of choice of a living human being. And eventually they backed off it all, though I don't see the date when they finally walked away altogether. And now a big one, California, number three. The first state sterilization law in California was enacted on April 26, 1909, and remained largely unopposed for the next 70 years. That's right, 7-0. Wow. This was the first of three laws passed in California, and it targeted patients in state hospitals and institutions for the mentally retarded, as well as prison inmates. Of the prison inmates, those labeled sex offenders were the most commonly targeted. At the time of the passage of this law, the approval of the superintendent of the institutions, the superintendent of the state hospitals, and the secretary of the state board of health were consulted. If two out of three of them approved, the sterilization could be carried out. 
A second law was passed on June 13, 1913. This law repealed the first law and established different guidelines. It allowed for a wider range of people to be sterilized. Anyone who was afflicted with hereditary insanity or incurable chronic mania or dementia could be sterilized. This law also established the State Lunacy Commission, which had the power to order sterilizations. However, this law did call for parental consent in the case of the sterilization of minors. The third law, enacted at the end of July of 1917, created modifications to the 1913 sterilization law by expanding the scope of who could be sterilized. Two amendments were made to the 1913 law, which included specific references to the Sonoma State Home and the Pacific Colony. The law established the Pacific Colony and allowed the Board of Trustees of this institution to grant permission for sterilizations of those living there. The one astounding thing about this, Jason, is it stood for 70 years. So you're looking at 1979 before anyone said a peep, apparently. And this goes to show uh, what people, what happens to people if you don't stand up and demand your natural rights. Basically, what's going on here in the state of California is three different sets of implemented eugenics ideas being implemented simply because people are accepting it or maybe Maybe more fairly, um, they might not have been very aware because very few have to do with the uh, institutionalized persons. But nonetheless, this is case in point. These are human beings with natural born rights. One of the premier natural born rights we all have is that no one can infringe on our freedom of choice um, and, and freedom of will. And here we see it being done over a period of about 70 years and they got away with it. Uh, shameful episode in California history there, Jason. Absolutely. Since we're at the top of the hour, that's all we'll get to as far as those. In the second hour, we're going to get into this incredibly insane report called the preliminary report of the committee of the eugenics section of the American Breeders Association to study and to report on the best practical means for cutting off the defective germplasm in the human population. That's what it was called. And it was done in 1911. That is where we're going to pick up for hour two. And this thing is crazy. So I would just add before we close down, you folks listening think all this crap we see in the news is mutually exclusive. Here they're talking about curtailing the human population and the date of implementation is 1911. There it is, man. Hope to see you all over at Crow777radio.com for the second hour. Again, at the posting of this episode will be 90 free hours of content there, no login required. And again, go check out my new app. Uh, if you hit Twitter, you can get an easy link to it. Anyhow, that brings episode 90 to a close for the top of the first hour. Please join us over at crow 7 radiocom There it is, man. Cheers. Cheers.